just so you know, I've been recording. <laughs> so fabulous. Um, if there's anything, like, I-, I have a Patreon page for the podcast that doesn't have a lot of oh. support right now, but what I like to post is before and after conversations. Oh, And okay. so we've got <laughs> a lot of material for a good long episode of bonus oh, material. Oh, good. Yeah, so, you can, yeah, you have a bonus Harry Potter yeah. episode. <laughs> yeah, which is great. I'm, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, please, so, yeah. please use it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinescope. This is episode 95. And for the second time in just a few short weeks, I've got a new guest on the show rather than a repeat. And it is an old friend of mine, somebody who really kind of kickstarted me on my podcasting journey. And that's something I've reflected on a lot in the last week or so. This is Michael Harley. Did I say that right, Michael? You sure did. Okay, just making sure I should have asked before (laughs) in the 45 minutes that we've been talking before we just started. (laughs) I was was like 80% positive. No, you got it. You got I mean, to be fair to you, it's been a long time. It has, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm farther back in your podcast. I'm like the farthest back in your podcasting history, right? Yeah, believe it or not, before Movie Bite even, this isn't something I've talked a whole lot about, not because of any shame or anything, but because of sort of lack of it sort of being out there nowadays, unfortunately. Mm. My very first foray into podcasting was through MuggleNet. It was called Audio Fictions Podcast, where we and, or sorry, i got to collect my thoughts on this, where I and several other narrators and editors and Michael and a few other people, we would find harry potter fan fiction and we would read it like an audiobook and then michael would compile them together he was our fearless leader he would <laughs> compile them together into an episode and that that was what we did for several years and it was a lot of fun and that was my first experience recording myself that was my first experience editing myself and i just looked back on it and it was like wow this really did have a this was a formative experience in my life that led me to where i am today so thank Aww. you michael <laughs> i'm so glad that i got to be a part of that looking back on it cuz there were so many waves of readers that happened and i never really got a clear like audio fiction's never had a clear it's it's really unclear like where like the seasons of audio fictions are i guess and so it's hard for me to remember I don't remember if you were one of the readers. I feel like you might have been a reader that auditioned and got in under Jason when he was still leading, or you auditioned for me. I can't remember, though. I, I think I auditioned for you. Did you audition for me? I went I don't know when you took over production. It was late. It was late. Yeah, well, I I think I joined the team in 2010 or 2011 because I think it was like either oh, right yeah. right when I first started going to college that that I oh, okay. saw the the feeler on MuggleNet and thought that sounds fun why not and that was the start of it so I, I was actually looking for the original emails but I, I do not have them those are very old <laughs> well you should be very proud of yourself then because you were you were chosen democratically by the team. Because I never wanted to be the one making all, calling all the shots. Like I, w- I always wanted be, things to be a team decision. So you were chosen by the team of readers, and 
as we were talking about before the show tell your listeners you've come so far and i just i feel like i feel like a real like we're probably we're probably around the same age but i feel like a really proud dad who's just like oh like he grew up in podcasting and he's just gone so far and he's oh like yeah no i'm so proud i'm so like i'm so excited for you i was so excited when i looked up your podcast and it was like all five star reviews on itunes and like people had just such lovely glowing things to say and then i listened to a little bit of one of your episodes I immediately jumped into the episode about Inside Out because it's one of my favorite Pixar's and I just like immediately was taken with the banter and like the direction the conversation went in and then I'll tell your listeners how this all happened but I recently got back in touch with the audio fictions team just because it had been a few years and I finished a project for MuggleNet that I had needed to get done and I had been thinking about you all a lot and got in touch and then you were so sweet to offer us all like an open invitation and me vain little me was just like <laughs> i have a film degree i have a film degree pick me pick me pick me so <laughs> so no I'm, I'm really excited this this is a great i love this concept i love i just love to rant and, and rave and discuss about films that i both love and despise and everything in between like my my poor friends who are subjected to my love of movies that everybody perceives to be bad and i'm just kind of like let's watch it let's watch this bad thing and we're gonna talk about why it's bad and i i live for that so i just love the film experience so much and sharing it with others so i'm so excited about joining you on this podcast well i'm really excited to to be able to have like a real conversation with you i mean we I say we've been talking for 45 minutes. We've been talking for almost an hour now (laughs) and it's been great. There's been no lagging conversation. It's really our first time to just like sit down and have the conversation voice to voice because we we've Facebook chatted in the past or we had a group dedicated to audio fictions where we talk about upcoming deadlines and stuff like that. But to like sit down and have a conversation like this isn't something we've really done before. So I'm just enjoying it's like meeting an old friend in a certain respect. The funny thing was I don't I I I think the whole time that we were doing audio fictions, I never really even talked to y'all about what I was because I was in because it was two thousand like audio fiction started in two thousand eight, I think it ended in two thousand fourteen. And so I was, I had just, I had been in college during audio fictions. Right. Same for my time in, as well. Yeah. So I didn't, but I don't think I like really ever talked to you because I did find a post, I think, in, in our old chats where I was just like, I, by the way, y'all, I graduated. <laughs> y'all were just like, yay. <laughs> and I don't think I ever mentioned even to y'all that I was in, my bachelor's was in film. I don't think we really ever talked about that. I think you and I may have had like some scattered, very short chats about film when I'd like, sometimes you would post something on Facebook and I was like, ah, I can't help myself. Right. So I just like, I'd have to throw in an opinion because I just, I liked the thing. Like clearly your taste and my taste, like film wise align a bit. I was exploring when I searched your name in my email. Again, uh-huh, I was looking for uh-huh. those originals. But what I did find was I did a research project in college about the effect of reading critical opinions, whether positive or negative, before seeing a movie would affect that person's mm-hmm. overall opinion of the movie. And you participated in that. I don't even know if you even remember that. I vaguely remember this. At least you volunteered you it. for it. So <laughs> That's so funny. I wonder what yeah. I said. I would have to look back for that. I wonder if what I said then is what I'd say now. <laughs> mm, if I can find that, I will let you know. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, it's, it's kind of perfect, too, just because with how i was saying our tastes align 
it's kind of perfect the film that we're talking about today because i think that actually speaks a lot to some shared taste stuff about our favorite films and absolutely does <laughs> whatnot it's kind of coincidental that this like this particular film is the one that got chosen because i gave you a whole list and they're like all of those films I, I i'm very passionate about but this this for me is the one so well let's go ahead and talk about it then because we are, <laughs> we're talking about contact which is actually another first time watch for me yes. which is surprising because it's by my favorite film director Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis! He is so good. I love him so much. Love All him. of his movies. And I'm glad to add another one to my list of movies that I love. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this released on July 11th of 1997. Zemeckis, in case you didn't know, he also directed Romancing the Stone, the Back to the Future trilogy. There, there's the, the ball drop. We're both big Back <laughs> to the Future fans. <laughs> <laughs> then there's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, Beowulf, Christmas Carol, Flight, The Walk, Allied, Welcome to Marwin, and he's directing an upcoming adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches. Interested to see how that turns out. My body is so ready. I can't. <laughs> I love Roald Dahl and I love Roald Dahl adaptations. I even loved Spielberg's The BFG from a couple years ago. Mm, so mm -hmm. I'm really anxious to see what Zemeckis does. Another beloved filmmaker taking on the, the work of a beloved writer from my childhood. You've probably heard, but, you know, they're they're resetting it, I think, in Louisiana. And the mm. the, the main boy character, he's going to be black. And they're kind of re restructuring it for that culture and that audience. And I'm so excited because The Witches, is a concept that you can easily tailor to tell a story from a different lens and i'm just the fact that he's that he is helping shepherd that and like hopefully it seems taking input for that is really exciting i think there's like some po some really positive stuff that could come out of that absolutely I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens i remember a few years ago he was attached to an animated remake of the beatles yellow submarine Oh um, wow! <laughs> yeah, and that never happened. I don't. Obviously, it didn't happen. But I, I always love seeing Zemeckis' name on a project, and I, I am anxious to see again him adapt something that I have a lot of fondness for, anyways. And mm -hmm. especially if it's going to be so well attended to and adapted in a way that is more culture, not culturally appropriate, but like it's reflective of the times. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Contact was written by James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg and was based on a 1985 novel by Carl Sagan, also called Contact. And I had no clue that Sagan wrote, like, fiction. So that mm -hmm. was pretty cool. He, well, <laughs> he <Yeah>. tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have some thoughts about the book. I haven't read the whole thing. But uh -huh. that, I mean, that also kind of speaks to my thoughts about the book. <laughs> well, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts because I actually bought the book after watching the movie. I haven't started reading it, though. So I, I'm curious to know your opinion on that. I just got my hands on a hardback copy here in. You'll know about this chain because we have these here in Texas. I, I came across a copy at Half Price Books mm -hmm. and so excited. I always love going there. Um, this isn't a half price book sponsored show, but hey, half price books, holla at you. But it's so hard to find in hardback. I've never come across it in hardback, so I had to buy it, and it was in pretty good condition too. But I, 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 I want to give it another read. But Sagan, bless his heart, and this is much more like his thing. Like he literally will just stop the narrative to explain in a whole chapter a scientific concept to you. Ah. Uh... Gotcha. And it's not quite as digestible, say, as his Cosmos series, 
it's still a little heady. And I, for me as a reader, it was terribly distracting, especially having seen the movie first, which has like, and we'll get into this obviously, but the movie has so much heart. And when you just full on stop the development of your heart to just be like, math 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 <laughs> it was just like nope <laughs> i cannot do this so i'll give it another shot but uh yeah i i this is one of those rare instances where the movie might indeed be better than the book <laughs> yeah knowing that it's written by carl sagan i assumed that a lot of the heart did come from the writers for the film and zemeckis himself because i mean that that's like a staple in all of his films is the 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 imagination and the heart that comes out of it i cannot believe i am so mortified because this is on record somewhere in like the previous podcast i used to be on alohomora for MuggleNet. we would always watch after we'd read through the harry potter book that we were going through on the show we would finish by watching the movie that accompanied it (laughs) Uh on the order of the phoenix episode it's so funny because i didn't know this and i didn't do my research properly um, I'm very ashamed of that version of Michael. Shame on you, Michael, from the past. <laughs> but I was going, like, we do the same thing where we run through, like, kind of the stats of the movie and the information. And um, I was like, the screenplay was written by Michael Goldenberg. He hasn't done very much. And the script sucks. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just like, oh, my God, he he helped write the script of my favorite movie. But he also wrote the script of one of my least favorite Potter films. And he's especially stand out in that situation because he's the only other scriptwriter than steve clovis who worked on a main harry potter movie right because steve needed a break for that series and so goldenberg stepped in and did order and it's so funny someday i need to go this would be an insane back-to-back watch but someday i need to back-to-back watch contact with order of the phoenix and be like so what's going on here like (laughs) that would be so fascinating to like compare goldenberg's process but he is working with such different concepts with these two things and i mean you know i I don't know how much involvement he had versus heart and i know that sagan and his wife were very involved in the story for the script and that zemeckis really tailored a lot of it too so i'm not really even entirely clear on how much goldenberg contributed and exactly what he did i looked up goldenberg's filmography while you were talking just now just to see Mm-hmm. And I need to err, I think, on the side of it's very likely that this is his only good script. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we we have lots of questions then about exactly how involved he was, if that's the yeah. case. <laughs> yeah. So other other scripts by Goldenberg. He did the 2003 Jeremy Sumter Peter Pan movie, co-wrote with Hogan, mm-hmm. which I, I admittedly I don't have a lot of memories of that, except for all the girls going crazy over Jeremy Sumter. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Order of the Phoenix, and then he also did Green Lantern oh. <laughs> and the, the new Artemis Fowl movie. Oh, and, Michael yeah, Goldenberg, so. honey, sweetie. We, <laughs> Who hurt you? Let's, let's, we need to buy him dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The, the Artemis Fowl movie, I've got to say, everybody, I started rereading the book series to like cleanse myself before the credits <laughs> finished rolling. Like, I have the Opal Deception within an arm's reach of me right now because the <laughs> Artemis Fowl movie it was so bad. Wow. I need okay. to I'm I'm a very bad librarian by the by the way y'all. I'm I'm not I'm not a librarian officially. That's that'll be that'll be in two years when I hopefully finish my MLS degree. But um I have been in library since I was twelve. And but I am that weird I am the rare weird librarian who will like probably recommend a movie to you before I recommend a book. 
it's my film upbringing. I just, I, I, and Artemis Fowl is one of the ones that I um, never touched. I just never got around to it. I'll have to check in on that one. I think you will love it. I probably will, but um, the, I'm assuming you mean the, the book. <laughs> yes, yes, please. For all that is holy, read the book while listening to the score mm. of, of mm. The, the movie. Like, that, that works. Oh my god, that was such a good transition. Speaking of score... <laughs> the music is by Alan Silvestri, of course, because it's a Zemeckis movie. I, I love these collaborations. Like, obviously, you've got Williams and Spielberg, which is so classic, but mm-hmm. just as classic as Silvestri and Zemeckis. Yes. And to, to know what he has composed, all of Zemeckis, almost all, I think, of Zemeckis movies, the Night at the Museum trilogy, Captain America, the first Avenger, the Avengers, Ready Player One, which is fantastic, and then the Infinity War and Endgame Avengers films as well. So Silvestri keeps himself busy nowadays with like superhero stuff, but Mm -hmm. he also has classics like Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump. And this score reminds me a lot of Forrest Gump in particular. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. I could totally see Mm -hmm. that. And, And not in a bad way. Not like it sounds like the exact same as no you know, like some of zimmer's mid 2000 scores a lot of those just sound the same because they sound the same mm-hmm. but anyways this movie stars jodie foster jenna malone as the young ellie matthew mcconaughey david morse tom scarrett james woods john hurt will fickner angela bassett and in a small role jake Busey. <laughs> small but very memorable <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And it's funny because the last movie we talked about on the podcast was Starship Troopers, which also featured oh, Jake Busey. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> As we like to start off these conversations, what was your first experience with this movie? It's funny because the, the, it was it was definitely informative. Like I do have there there is admittedly a nostalgic tie to it, which is that my my parents showed it to me. And it must have been about a year after it came out because I guess they had seen it in theaters. I first saw it at home. And I think my parents were trying to express that to me at the time. I did think I do think that was a fascinating element to me. I'm from Albuquerque, a town, a small town outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I now live in Austin, Texas, but my parents were telling me during the movie that the the scenes at the VLA, the very large array where all the big satellites are um that Ellie goes to that was filmed and is mentioned in the film to take place in um, Socorro, New Mexico, which is a few mm-hmm. hours away from Albuquerque. I have sadly never been. I can't tell you how badly I want to go there and like drive a car into the middle of those satellites and reenact the scene where she hears the message. Like <laughs> it's my dream. But I think especially now, like there's there is this lovely nostalgia for me looking at it because I the film does love New Mexico aesthetically when it's in New Mexico. It treats New Mexico very well aesthetically. So that's there's a fondness for that, but I think like I remember distinctly remembering recalling this after I finished my film degree, and you know the classic thing that people ask you when you tell them that you're a film major or cinema major is they're like, so what's your favorite movie? And as many people say, like that's a very hard question, and really there isn't one answer generally for that for anybody, film major or not. But I think I look back on Contact and continue to look at it this way because. My first viewing of it, I so distinctly remember that it is just exactly the experience that I want to have when I go to see a movie. I was in awe the first time I saw it because I found Ellie to be an interesting character. I didn't fully understand her in the movie, but I but I was interested in her. Jodie Foster is a great 
she's just a great actress to pick visually for a movie because she's got a unique look and she's mm-hmm. very expressive. She just kind of draws you in with her face. And I I was interested in Ellie and her story. The message that they get from the aliens is done so well. The buildup of the contact is done so well. And it's the film balances this wonderful feeling of, of excitement and, and, and suspense. This beautiful tension that you can just cut like a knife throughout almost the whole runtime. And every time I have showed people the film after seeing it myself... I get so much joy watching them watch it because everybody has the same reaction um, at all of the same points of the movie. And people are always in awe about this movie when I tell them about it or show it to them because I think a big thing to remember about Contact and a reason why a lot of people maybe don't know much about it or haven't seen it is unfortunately for Contact, it came out the same year as Titanic and nobody talked about anything else. And I do think that Contact would have gotten a lot more love in a different year. It just chose just the wrong time it was kind of right in between two that's another thing is especially the u.s but the world as a whole we kind of ebb and flow with our with our feelings about space exploration and it it tends to increase when we have if we send a robot off to mars or if we send a satellite out to the far reaches of space and if you're right in between those times the public interest has kind of waned and we had just, I think, come off of some discoveries on Mars, and that's in the movie. But I think we just discovered some stuff about, like, evidence that there was still maybe water on Mars or something like that. But it was post that. And so if we're not in this, if, especially if the U.S. isn't in a space mood, they're not really in the mood for a space movie. So I feel like it just kind of got forgotten. But I was kind of one of those who was just like, I have always remembered this film. And then I revisited it and older age and was like oh my god this film still gives me the same exact feelings i felt when i first saw it and it still does every single time and i still discover something new every time i watch it too it's just it's full it's a full movie (laughs) i think that's something that zemeckis in particular does really really well i look Mm. at back to the future as an example of this where i can watch it back to back if i wanted to and i would experience the same chills during the the time jump scenes i would laugh at the same jokes i would mm-hmm. i would feel all the same things every single time i watch that movie no matter what because it's it's something about the way zemeckis infuses his films with heart and just the right amount of comedy and the the breadth of the storytelling he's so gifted and yes. so I, i'm looking for like i i think i might watch this movie again in the next mm-hmm. couple of days just to mm-hmm. further explore it because i re- did really enjoy it like i said this was my first time watching and i didn't this was another film just like starship troopers last week this is another film where i didn't really know anything about it i mean mm. you can glean things from the title i mean contact i think is even even as a single word title it it hints pretty heavily towards science fiction and mm-hmm. aliens and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't necessarily have like an expectation of anything, mm-hmm. but when I posted in a film discussion group that I'm a part of on Facebook that I was watching it for the first time, everything everybody had to say was super positive. And then after watching the movie, I looked at some more like critical reception of the time and Roger Ebert, who is probably cliche to say, but he is my favorite film mm-hmm. critic. Yeah. He, he gave it three and a half stars and then he later added it to his list of great movies. Yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of love for this movie out there, even if it's not talked about as frequently as some of Zemeckis other works mm-hmm. or as, as much as Titanic since that's from the same year. Starship yeah. Troopers, I, th- I think might even be 
was that 97? I don't remember for sure. I yeah. I, I didn't have an expectation, but I walked away loving it. And it reminded me a lot of Zemeckis's the polar express, which is my favorite Christmas movie. I've talked multiple times on this show about how much I love that movie. And this movie explores similar themes of seeing versus believing yes, and having faith in things that are out there, whether you have evidence of them or not. I know you've talked about the Polar Express on your show, and I'm so glad you brought it up because I the Polar Express is a very bizarre, somewhat maligned Christmas movie, mainly because of the Uncanny Valley stuff. And mm-hmm. like, if you can get past that, and I know it's hard to get past, but if you can get past the Uncanny Valley, it is probably one of the stronger children's book adaptations that exists out there. Like, the film did not have to be that good. It really had no right. right to be, considering that the source material is so delightfully thin and simple. And The Polar Express is one of my favorite picture books from when I was a kid, which is funny because I'm Jewish, so I really shouldn't say that. But I, I do like The Polar Express, even though it is a Christmas story, it is it has a lot of the same, like you were saying, like tying it into context themes. It has a lot of universal themes. And it explores them, like the movie ends up exploring them in such adult ways. It asks really big questions for a Christmas mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. And it's, and I mean, like, it's a delight for me and my brother. Like, I have a nostalgic for the piece for that one, too, because my brother, he is low-functioning autism, and he loves trains, and the Polar Express is some, obviously something he adores, and we watch mm-hmm. it every year. But, you know, it's funny, too, thinking about themes for Zemeckis, because just hearing your list of Zemeckis' movies... It's just like, what is this guy's deal? Because he's everywhere. Like he he dips into every genre. Like he's 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 done like madcap animation with Roger Rabbit. He's he's done these intense dramas like like Castaway and and Gump. But he's done such like humor like Back to the Future and then sci-fi with Contact. And he does biopics. He's he dips into everything. And I was really and I haven't seen all of Zemeckis's movies. But with the ones I have seen, it is interesting to think about, like, what is he, like, what are his themes? And I was trying to think about it in terms of contact. And I do think, like, one thing I kind of latched on to that he does consistently do in his stories is his his characters often think that they have lost something. But mm-hmm. usually by the end of the movie, they they realize that it's just been something that they innately had. It's very Wizard of Ozzy. Actually, right. um, but he that's almost that's a pretty consistent theme throughout all of his movies is that his his characters have experienced a loss and then they think that that loss has permanently damaged them. And it's something they're often chasing after. And then in the end of the movie, they find that they really didn't lose anything. They just had something kind of buried in them that they needed to rediscover. I agree with that. And something that maybe just occurred to me, and I hope I don't get like scorned from this <laughs> from other people. But I I kind of think that Zemeckis might be a more prolific james cameron in certain respects because you look at you look at james Cameron, and i don't mean like that he's better than him it's just his body of work is obviously a lot wider yes than cameron's, cameron's yeah but if you look at both filmmakers a lot of what features in their films is advances in technology and how they use that technology to further their narrative Yes. So even though yes. Zemeckis has dipped his toes in a lot of different genres of film, in each one, he's testing some sort of new technology. Zemeckis mm-hmm. is the guy who pioneered motion capture yeah. in a lot of ways. Like the reason we have motion capture today is widely because of one, Lord of the Rings, but two, also Polar Express, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And he did that with Beowulf. And you have the the news footage manipulation in both Forrest Gump and in this one with Bill Clinton. And there's so much of Zemeckis's work that is 
him trying to push technology to the next level. Now, because he's more prolific and has made more films than Cameron, his strides aren't as big necessarily, but it's always interesting to pick up a Zemeckis film and see, okay, what's he going to do with visual effects this time that he didn't do last time or that he's refining this time around? Yeah, Zemeckis definitely walks so others can run. Like that seems to be, I think maybe the one time he got to run a little bit more was Roger Rabbit Mm -hmm. because that stuff had already been played with and he took it i think kind of to its peak of what it could be but often he he does have to he he loves to play with new stuff like i even you hearing you say that i was like yeah he he definitely like i didn't see these two but he definitely did that with walk and welcome tomorrow and he was playing with 3d and walk and he was playing again more with the merging of motion capture and and animation with marwin so that is definitely a thing he does not always to great success but more often than not <laughs> um like he's kind of hit a few bumps lately in his career as far as critical reception but contact i think the reason i continually go back to it is because and why i went back to it immediately after my film degree was complete was because i felt everything that i had learned from my time in film school what i took from that was that i like applying it all to contact contact pretty much succeeds on every level as far as what it's giving you as a film experience it does everything that i personally want a film to do only recently have i had that kind of awe with a film like contact with other films like other films uh, not to say that other films don't entertain me or wow me in their own ways but i remember the few recent times that i felt that same awe probably the most recent one was and you know take this leave this for what you will Blade Runner 2049. Yes, I need to revisit that one. I loved it. Yeah, I had a very similar reaction. I know a lot of people don't like 2049, but I did actually have a moment that I rarely have in movies where I actually kind of had to pick my jaw up off the floor when I was watching (laughs) 2049 because I was just like, how are they doing this? I love movies that make me just kind of wonder how they did it and contact still sometimes makes me do that, especially with the later scenes when when the film... The film grows from a small scale to a grand scale, and it and mm-hmm. it does that very clearly through its visuals. The film loves playing with scale. It does it immediately in the opening scene, and then it keeps doing that theme throughout the rest of the movie. And by the time you're at the grandiose scale of the machine that takes Ellie, maybe, somewhere else, <laughs> the the design of the machine and the animation on the machine and the the sound effect the sound bed on the machine it's perfect like mm-hmm. it's so delightfully simultaneously familiar and alien it just gets everything right with that and especially because from what i understand from what i do know behind the scenes the machine is not well described in the book so they kind of mm-hmm. had carte blanche and they came up with something beautiful Part of me, the a part of the reason I'm a little crushed that it didn't do better is like if it had, there would definitely be a contact ride at Universal Studios. <laughs> <laughs> it would be closed now, kind of like the Twister ride closed, but there would definitely be a contact ride because uh-huh. Ellie's journey through space is one of the most phenomenal moments that ties in and borrows so much from films before it and informs a lot of films that came after it. It's perfectly centered, actually, kind of in space travel for what it's doing. And uh, I viscerally feel it every time she takes that journey. And I really wish I like 
I so long for Contact to maybe someday have a revisit back to the big screen because I never got to see it on the big screen and I would love to see it on the big screen. Yeah, that would be amazing. What I love about the the journey to Vega, aside from just the visual effects of it, is watching Ellie's experience oh, yes. in that moment. Because here is this character who has expressed her feelings towards believing in things that don't have empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. And here she is in the middle of this pod. She's the only one who is having this experience. She's watching the the metal turn translucent around her. She's witnessing going through this tunnel and having these insane, fantastic experiences. And she's having to sort of accept that this is beyond her realm of understanding and then later when she has returned it's beyond her ability to prove as well yeah. and so you're you're watching this character who is being shaken to her core and having nearly every belief that she's ever had challenged mm -hmm. and that is something that this film aside from it being a sci-fi i didn't expect those those elements of belief and religion and science and all those things i didn't expect those to be questioned in the way they are here if you or your listeners have ever watched i never watched the original version but i did watch the first season of the new um, reboot of cosmos that neil degrasse tyson now hosts and was originally hosted by sagan but either one if you look at anything that like sagan had a hand in while he is primarily a scientist, he does try to infuse his science with heart. I think a lot of Sagan's struggle was to try to reconcile humanity's personal beliefs with science, and he never wanted to leave that element out. He, he, and Tyson in there, and with the new Cosmos, the script writing for for Cosmos really speaks a lot to. And by the way, fun little tie-in. The theme for Cosmos was written by Alan Silvestri. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the opening to Cosmos is pretty much ripped from contact. But there is very much this uh, idea that that science is in its own way a religion and that science has unexplainable beauty in it that scientists in their own way, in their own kind of form of religion, they marvel at. They seek answers because they want to ask more questions and contact mm -hmm. does that so well like ellie gets an answer and then she immediately has more questions literally when she arrives on the mysterious planet that she gets to she gets some answers and she immediately has more questions and mm -hmm. you the audience are left with the same question she is i i think that's another reason i love contact too because you are you feel you're holding ellie's, ellie's hand through the whole movie like she's she's well that really that she's holding your hand you're going on the same exact journey she goes on i can't give enough credit to jodie foster on that movie <laughs> like she she it's funny because out of all of her her filmography contact is kind of one that doesn't come up a lot in discussion for her but she brings it up and she talks about how much that film pushed her especially that finale when she's traveling to Vega and she said Zemeckis really pushed a lot out of me because all I was looking at was a green screen. But you would never know it. Watching right. the performance, there's a really cool thing that's happening in that scene when she sees the the kind of the cosmic event is what she calls it. She doesn't even really know what it is. And she's at a loss for words and what's happening on her face that Zemeckis it's it's Zemeckis playing with his tech again is 
he had her do the performance multiple times and then he pasted her face with the different performances onto her body. And if you look closely, Gina Malone, she also performed the scene and he pasted mm-hmm. Gina Malone into the scene too. And it's so subtly done. And I, ne- I didn't catch it the first, first few times I watched it. The idea that he felt that her emotions were just so grand that he wanted to, he couldn't encapsulate it by just getting one version of, of the performance from Jody. And that she had to deliver so many performances and that she managed to deliver so many engaging performances for that one small scene looking at nothing but a green screen. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like probably having very little to no idea about what Ellie was really looking at. Yeah, she just holds that film so much on her shoulders and she does such a good job with it. Admittedly, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Foster's filmography. And so I was really impressed to see, especially in that scene, everything. And even more so, maybe, I think, her acting in the the final court hearing oh, when she's yeah. having to sort of uh-huh. try and explain away exactly what happened here. And she's she's conflicted with her views as a scientist and knowing that because there's no evidence, there is a possibility that it didn't happen because of Occam's razor. but also grappling with the fact that she knows what she witnessed and she experienced it, mm-hmm. whether it was conscious or unconscious or subconscious. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's multiple possibilities for how that might've actually went down, but she's having to grapple with these alternate possibilities and is unable to definitively say one way or another, despite being a scientist, despite arguing against religion earlier in the film, she's at a loss. And I love that. And the way she gets emotional in that scene, you really see the depth of her struggle and perhaps the understanding that she has now of Joss, who mm-hmm. has expressed his obvious his faith earlier in the film to her and has questioned hers. And she's finally starting to understand exactly where he's coming from and exactly how you can believe in something that you really only have a gut feeling about. Speaking of Joss, side shout out to Matthew McConaughey for being the most tempered McConaughey performance that ever was. Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he's probably his like least. He's still McConaughey, but he's probably his least. You know, all right, all right, all right, McConaughey <laughs> in contact. Like he is really, he's really knocking it out of the park with the role. Like the role is is still very tailored to him, but he he's going pretty high concept. Um, with it and and he's holding jody up throughout the movie really well like their their relationship is probably like it's not as uh, their relationship is a little thin i've heard criticism of that point but i still find it engaging because of the questions they're asking each other they're both very interesting people and they are both the core of the film in terms of what the film is asking the audience and i love that Zemeckis and Sagan don't leave like leave you the audience with as much of a choice to make about what happened as Ellie and the characters around her have a choice to believe regarding their relationship couldn't you argue that the thinness of it would speak to the same themes of belief in the unexplained like they don't have a whole lot of time together they have the one night in what is it Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. and then they come across each other four or five years later and they remember each other and we see that Ellie's been carrying around this compass and something that I noticed was that the compass is on a chain Yeah, and you don't put something on a chain unless you're going to wear it. Mm -hmm. So she's worn this. She, she thought back fondly of her one experience with this person. And so in some ways their affection for each other 
follows the same themes of believing in the unexplained that the science fiction does. Like there's no real reason for them to have as deep a connection to each other as they do because they haven't had that time together, but yet they're drawn to, to each other all the same. Yeah, totally. I think the film, I think the compass is a big piece of speaking to that concept because ultimately the compass's purpose is to save her life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like that. It it continues to speak to that idea that there is like, there's a scene when they're at the, it's after their, um, it's after the scene at the white house when they go to the dinner party and he takes her out to the balcony and he's asking her if she loved her father. And it's those scenes where the, he continues to like chip away and question her rigid belief. And she chips away and question at his just as much that I don't see the thinness in their relationship that I think a lot of critics did mm-hmm. because those scenes in dialogue and how the film rewards the relationship and the meaning of the relationship in terms of the larger narrative, I don't really mind the thinness because I think it, like you said, it's part of that kind of idea that there are, might be just cosmic coincidences. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are forces that draw people together or forces that, don't have evidence hard evidence that they exist but yeah they might be out there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just like her love for her father yes that's a great moment in that movie too and it's really not chewed over like they immediately have to go on to think about something else because that's when they get more information about the the code or it gets leaked i think at that point so they they don't even get to really chew over it but it's a great moment because just for a heartbeat it stops the movie and neither of them really know what to say and it's such a big thing and it's an invasive question. And it's, I just love that contact doesn't insist on giving you, like, it really wants you to think. It does not have all the answers for you. I like films that do that. Me too. It's funny because saying that I love films that do that, the film that I often think about as kind of a comparison for films that don't answer questions in the similar way is Inception. But ironically, like, I kind of felt that Nolan was going to be going, like, as he was developing his oeuvre, I, I kind of was like, oh, Nolan's going on the same track as Zemeckis. He's, like, doing these crazy, beautiful visuals and making me think. And then, <laughs> and, you know, everybody has their different opinion on this one, but then Interstellar happened, and <laughs> I was so primed for Interstellar to be kind of a spiritual cousin to Contact, especially notwithstanding because McConaughey's in it. And Interstellar definitely acknowledges contact in multiple mm-hmm. ways. I felt similarities yes. between the two. They want to hold hands, but then Interstellar, in a way, actually is kind of closer to how Sagan writes, because Interstellar is like, so science, 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 <laughs> math, science, science. And then the tragic thing for me is that Interstellar, Interstellar has a heart, but its science way overtakes its heart. It gets so muddled up in its own science, and it's it's really determined. We live in a world now where bad faith criticisms have shaped film, and Interstellar is a victim in many ways of that. I think Interstellar so wants to get the science right that it abandons the heart a little bit to get to the science. I actually would think if you want a good cousin to contact that is, I think, a proper cousin, Arrival would be a proper sister to contact. Okay, I own that one. I have not yet watched it. I've got a long list of movies that I own but haven't watched, so I'll have to get around to that if it's at all similar to this. It is definitely similar. Amy Adams is is holding up the film in very similar ways that Jodie Foster is here 
it's also you know it, it, like you could retitle arrival contact it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. like there are very similar things that are being explored and questions that are being examined and beautiful visuals denis villeneuve the guy who we were just talking about 2049 that's him he i think because denis is more steeped in sci-fi i think with his current filmography then he has decided to kind of hone in on sci-fi a little more than say zemeckis is where zemeckis gets is playing in all genres but denis villeneuve is definitely playing with sci-fi in a way that i love and that i kind of thought nolan was gonna do and nolan's kind of going a little more fact heavy than i prefer in my movies and contact and arrival and movies like that there's just even with the science, the the heart just balances it out so well. Before we get to more specific character discussion, do you have any more about like the story? Any any specific things or visuals that you want to highlight? Well, it's funny you said too at the end that how effective it is that Ellie goes by herself, because in the book she goes with like eight other people. Oh wow! <laughs> I was like, what a terrible decision. Why would you do that? Yeah, I can't imagine that. And they still try to play up the whole thing in the book. I think when they like eight of them get back and they're just like, this happened, and everybody's like, we still don't believe you. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> like that's 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 silly. The script is constantly making really good decisions to increase the heart that I think Sagan was trying to get at. The other thing I love about Contact is that it it never feels like there is a second of wasted time on in that movie. It's a long movie, but it never feels long and it never feels wasted. Everything counts towards the story and everything counts towards the development. I mean, I could add in a whole nother hour to contact <laughs> and still be happy with it. So, Michael, what you're saying is that there's no wasted space. <laughs> there's not. There's not because it would be an awful waste of space. I mean, if the movie is so aware of itself that it didn't waste the, the space that it says should not be wasted. Oh, yes. God. I, and yes, I, I, the other thing I'll point out, too, is that because this is one contentious thing about the film that is well known. And it's well known, weirdly, because of South Park. Because South Park did an episode about aliens. They've done many episodes about aliens, but they did a particular episode where (laughs) the whole episode, they harp on the ending of Contact and that it's crap. And and Mm then the part they hate about it is that she goes to the planet and the alien is her dad. (laughs) And they're just like, that's stupid. They just, they build up on the alien and then it's her dad. And I remember like in my youth kind of being like, oh, I want to see the alien. But which is a very, I think, young expectation, like an expectation that a, ch- a child watching a movie would have. But going back and, and like constantly reexamining it, I'm so happy with the decision. There's no, there's no better decision. I love movies that are aware that whatever the audience can dream up in their head is probably better than any definitive decision that the movie can make. And the movie is all about not making definitive decisions. The movie is about making you, letting you, the audience, make as many choices as Ellie gets to make, and having the alien disguise itself as her father which the alien explains very well in the dialogue why he does that for me it's a great choice because there's so much going on in that final scene in that penultimate scene with with ellie and and the alien that if you were if if there were some cgi business going on or whatever you would have to do to get the alien on screen in a creative new way, I think it would just distract so much from what the scene is actually trying to do. I love that moment because one, you've got the the sort of otherworldliness yes. of the environment. Yes. It, it's like a slight animated tinge mm-hmm. to that scene. 
that the aliens have created for Ellie and they say they appear as her father because it's like this would be easier for you to digest than what we actually look like mm-hmm. or what you're actually experiencing. And it's this idea that humans aren't ready to experience humans of earth. I, who knows if there's other humans out there. I don't, the, the movie presents that mm-hmm. we're not ready to experience what is outside the realm of what we know, except in like these tiny pieces. They say, this is a way this has been done for billions of years. You come here Everybody makes their way here eventually, and then we send you back. And eventually you'll make it a little bit further, and you'll find out a little bit more. And Mm -hmm. it's just piece by piece by piece because that's what we're able to sort of digest. One, another stunning thing about that explanation that they give to her that I love is that they didn't build the machine, and they don't know who did. Right. And I love that because it's very much that the, the aliens that she encounters have basically not much more knowledge of what's going on than she does and that humanity does. And they kind of, again, with that piece of discovering something that you always had that you thought you lost, the alien's main message is just to essentially remind humanity that they're not alone and that they can continue to look through space to find connection, but maybe don't forget that there are millions of people right there with you. And it's, it's a lovely message. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite of the, you know, humans encounter aliens and the aliens have a message movies because it doesn't have, like, it, it has something new to say without saying anything new, I guess, with those narratives. Like, it's it's very much kind of grounding itself in in saying, like, yeah, like, the, the movie, the ultimate experience is about the human experience. And there's not a lot of answers that like there, there's always an expectation in alien movies that the aliens have some kind of knowledge that we don't have. But really, in this movie, the knowledge they have is just something that we've always had. We just don't always remember. And I love that. I, I love what he everything he says to her in that scene is so carefully chosen. The questions she asks are carefully chosen and the responses he gives are carefully chosen. And it's it's the perfect amount. I don't want any more from the movie. If the movie gave me more, <laughs> I wouldn't want it. It's perfect as right. it is. <laughs> well, talking a little bit more specifically about Ellie's character. So, so from the beginning, we've got flashbacks. And I love the flashbacks. I thought we were probably going to get more than we ended up, but that was fine with me. Mm-hmm. You get this sense that right away, Ellie, she, she's smart. She has this thirst for discovery. She's using her radio to, to talk to people all the way down in Florida. And she's up in like the Midwest. And yet she's still a kid. She's smart, but she's still a kid. And she asked, well, could we, could we talk all the way to Saturn? Mm. Could we reach mom? Mm. And the question that immediately came to my mind was, is she not old enough to have yet grasped the concept of death? Like, does she think her mom is still alive? Is she still out there somewhere where she can reach her? We learn later that she died in complications from childbirth so she never knew her mother and it's like she thinks of her mother not as gone necessarily but just as far away as if that gap between them could be closed and then we have that later flashback where we see what happened to her father and that that heart attack that he had happened not long after that first scene in the timeline Mm -hmm. and her reaction is to go back inside and to go to her radio and to start calling for her dad now. It's just, it's heartbreaking to see this child who doesn't maybe fully understand the concept of death and is searching for answers, even from that young age, among the stars. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to her 
in her adult life to continue to listen, to continue to seek funding, because this is not necessarily consciously a search for her parents, but subconsciously it is. And then when she does go on that journey and arrives at this mysterious planet, who does she see but her father? His dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the connection that we have between those flashbacks and then what we eventually get when she makes that journey. Mm-hmm. Well, and how the flashbacks do such a good job of developing pretty much the moment that she kind of ended her ability to believe in anything that wasn't scientifically based. Mm-hmm. Like the the scene at the post her dad's funeral where the priest talks to her and says something that he, nobody should ever say to a child whose parent has just died. It is not helpful at all. And he's essentially, he does essentially tell her just like, God has plans. And sometimes his plans are to kill your dad. She's just like, thanks. <laughs> and then she, yeah. and, uh, and that moment, that is the moment where she goes upstairs and she tries to call her dad through the radio. And it is so well done because like you said, the baby Gina Malone doing some outstanding acting in this, in this movie. And it's enough. We don't need any more of young Ellie by that point in the movie. Again, no wastes of space. Uh, we get the memories that are core to who she is and why she became that way. And like you said, that connective tissue that we need for the ending, we don't need any more. So the only other time I think we see even stuff recollected is when John Hurt very creepily shows her memories of her childhood. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> and uh, that moment, like we get the recollections. Of, like that, It's a nice, perfect kind of midpoint in the movie where the movie reminds just gives you a visual reminder of her dad and what the kind of like you said the secondary purpose of her of her journey is but yeah it's it's just so tight Ah, contact is such a tight film it's (laughs) funny that we keep saying it but it's just like there are so many movies out there that are not this tight even really Mm -hmm. really good movies that are not this tight narratively and I don't know there's something about the pacing of contact that is just perfect for me it's just a perfect build-up in its suspense that Zemeckis, he's just, he just got it. He's just got it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do you have to say about her relationship with Palmer, with Joss? Um, you know, it's interestingly sexless, despite the sex Mm -hmm. scene, which, you know, post-sex scene, where they're just chatting, because the movie is much more interested in their intellectual attraction to each other than it is their sexual attraction. And there's even that scene where they where they're not supposed to be talking to each other in DC because she's one of the candidates to go on the mm-hmm. mission. And then they like secretly meet and like kiss and hug. And I'm just like, eh, who cares? Like <laughs> kissing and hugging, not needed. Just keep talking. I just right. like, like it's, it's more sexy when they talk to each other really than any. See it being my first time. I thought that he was trying to sabotage her. Like oh. he had staged like a, a photographer being nearby. And then all of a sudden, Oh no, she can't be the candidate because she's been fraternizing with the member of the council mm. or whatever. He ended up sabotaging her a different way. Yeah, No, but... he's still it, technically that scene is still a buildup to his sabotage, but it's not for, mm-hmm. it's not for the reasons that you would maybe assume. I mean, that's what, another reason I love the film is that it plays the suspense that drives the whole film is we got contacted by aliens. And what does that mean? Because the film spends the whole huge majority of the runtime having everybody questioning what the aliens want and why they contacted us and why why did it take so long and do they want to take over? Do they want to be friends? Do they want to exchange knowledge? Do they want to blow us up? Do they want to eat us? But inside that enormous question and suspense, there are these pocket suspenses that Zemeckis puts in. 
My favorite of the pocket suspenses is the scene with John Hurt on the airplane. And he plays it like it's sinister, and then he switches it around. And he does it with the lighting, the music, like all of the composition is done to make you think that it's Hammond, right? Isn't that his name? Haddon. Haddon. I was thinking of Hammond. From, Jurassic yeah, Park. Yeah, Jurassic Park. <laughs> They're very similar characters. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, Haddon is played in a sinister way because he's introduced halfway through the movie. He's talked about, but he doesn't, you don't get to meet him until about the half, like a little past the halfway point. And um, it's so fun how he plays with those little mini moments of suspense while answering the larger question another moment another one of my favorite moments of suspense is as you mentioned with jake Busey, the scene where he blows up the first machine it's nail biting it's so exciting the scene where ellie finally does get to go the tension that is built up just from the moment she says she's okay to go to the moment they press the button is insane Mm -hmm. and i think other movies and other directors may not have spent so much time on that particular scene to launch her into space because the launch into space is about as long as the actual journey, <laughs> but it's necessary. And side note, Sylvester is really doing great work in this movie. The good to go score is amazing. If you want like a good hype score to like listen to, to just get yourself all worked up, the good to go scene is ugh, amazing. Agreed on all of those things. <laughs> Regarding her attraction to Palmer. Mm. I just wanted to linger on a little bit longer. She doesn't necessarily have any sort of attraction or doesn't seem to have any interest in him until he says that he's a priest or a Christian or philosopher in that religion of some kind. And then he ends up using the same quote about how the waste of space Mm -hmm. that her dad had said to her. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered at first why she left him behind after having that sort of immediate connection to him and they have that night together. I mean, I guess in the scheme of things, it was just a one night stand, but he did give her that compass and she thought back to him. So do you, what what do you think was special about Palmer that did attract her to him and then led her to think back on that relationship, however brief it was all those years later? I think Ellie's regardless of how she is so in that portion of the film rooted in science the basis of what makes Ellie and any scientist kind of really in, in many ways like drives them is questions, asking questions uh-huh. and encountering things that they can't answer and then looking for answers. And like you said, there's a secret kind of core to Ellie's mission that she wants to find her parents, but she's never going to admit mm-hmm. that. And Palmer, without meaning to, almost kind of accidentally stumbles on that. He gets really close to uncovering pretty much her her true motivations i mean there's a reason that when she leaves him after the one night stand she immediately thinks back to the night that her dad died right and it's not he brought it up by accident assuming that her father was still alive and it clearly burns her a little bit it hurts but at the same time he's asking questions and using phrases that her father used And I think that is continuing to itch at her. And I think that her fascination with all of the questions he asked, he he just, he asked all the right stuff when he met her. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what keeps her intrigued about him. And then we find out, you know, too, that he does increase his visibility to the public over the course of those years that him and Ellie don't see each other. So she's kind of been keeping an eye on him on the fringe. I think there's, like you said, there's this core that Ellie wants to explore 
these things, but she has become so hardened by her experiences that she's closed off from doing that with somebody. And then Palmer's attraction to her, I think, is interesting as well, because there's something that he sees in her that makes him stick around. Perhaps it's that they're both searching for meaning, even in different ways Mm -hmm. and in different things. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about how she treats him, especially earlier on, that is particularly kind or that should endear her to him. But he does see her passion. And like I said, they're, they're pursuing the same thing. They're, they're pursuing answers and meaning. And they both look to the stars just for different specific things. And so the crux of their relationship, the, the real focal point at the end is when after she's gone through this hearing that was really sort of emotionally traumatizing to her and has challenged everything she's believed in, when he doesn't have any obligation at this point to to show affection for her because of not that she necessarily treated him poorly but she did just sort of abandon him and then she she was so willing to to leave him because she thought that the pursuit of knowledge and answering questions was so important not just to her but to mankind but in that that final moment for him to say you know what we have different beliefs on the world we have different focal points in our careers but at the end of the day we're both searching for truth and so i believe her and then for ellie to look back at him from inside the car and to grab his hand as a gesture of thank you it it in spite of the way she has sort of treated him in the past and she wasn't being rude to him necessarily she just wasn't reciprocating the affection that he was sort of showing for her in the same way and so for for him to express his belief in her despite that and for him to solidly stand by her side and to say that you know despite our different viewpoints on the world we are the same and we're searching truth in the same way i think that's really meaningful for for them to have that that moment together and for her to realize that they are searching for the same things the important piece i i want to follow up with that too is that because we talked a little bit about how like you were saying ellie kind of she pushes palmer away in that relationship especially the the big piece being the one night stand. But I think the movie does a really good job of balancing that the two of them have wronged each other with the piece where Palmer sabotages Ellie's efforts to go on the mission. And I think that's like a really big piece to keep in mind that the, the two of them both sabotage this relationship because the movie really does not want... I think the movie and Sagan... Sagan and Zemeckis are really determined to not give you a definitive answer of, and the movie I don't think would be properly doing what it's setting out to do if it tried to do this. It's not trying to tell you science or faith. It's trying to link your hand to both. And I think by Ellie's betrayal to Palmer with kind of saying, I can't go into this emotional place with you. I need science as my basis. And then for Palmer to say, well, I can't, just purely think of this in science terms. I need to think of this in emotional terms, and I'm doing an emotionally driven response to sabotage you, I think is a pretty... The simultaneous sabotage is what makes the point where they reunite and they 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 really do balance each other by the end, because in the end of the movie, Ellie is still seen, like, I think like that's the important piece too, is that she's not just like, while Palmer has given her so much and her journey has given her so much, she's still a scientist, like mm-hmm. out there with, with the kids in Socorro, teaching them about science and the scientific method. But in the end, she's the new piece of the end is that she's sitting out there in the, the evening in Socorro 
just looking at the dust in her hands, she picks up the dust, the dirt, and it has that same golden smile that it had when she picked up the dirt on the planet. And still speaking to that piece that she has found, because Ellie's gone through something incredible. And I think through that incredible experience, she has found a harmonious balance that only an experience like that would allow you to find. So Ellie ends the movie in that balanced place that I think the movie is trying to to teach us about. I mean, that's the other reason, too. I mean, notwithstanding that he passed away, but that the movie also ends with saying that the movie is dedicated to Carl. Um, it says for Carl at the end in the stars. And that was Carl Sagan's huge push in his in his life was to really marry the concepts of, of faith and science. Right. I actually looked into... I, I was curious what Sagan's religious beliefs were, if any. And mm-hmm. his thing was he couldn't be necessarily Christian or believing in a higher power because there wasn't the evidence there. But he also wouldn't call himself an atheist because he said atheism was the belief that there's proof that God doesn't exist. And so mm-hmm. he, he did firmly plant himself in that middle ground of leaving himself open to the possibilities in searching for truth, that there could be a higher power because he can't necessarily prove that it doesn't exist. So he was he was showing that there there needed to be proof on both sides to definitively say one way or another. And in the meantime, he was happy just sort of asking the question. Mm-hmm. With that, I, I you know, if, if, if you or your listeners haven't ever watched either Sagan's version or Tyson's version, Neil deGrasse Tyson's version of Cosmos, there is an unexplained beauty that is on a religious level of wonderment and awe in science. And that piece, like you said, that science is just the search for, not so much the search for truth as it is the search for more questions. Scientists aren't looking for definitive answers to everything. They love looking, if you're a true scientist, you're looking for more questions. and very much this movie contact leaves you with more questions than it does answers which is exactly what i think science and faith kind of want you to do going on to another character we have drumlin who we've already talked a little bit about and how awful he is so terrible and the scene that stands out for me about him i mean first off we see early in the film how unsupportive he is of ellie he's the one funding her project at first before he pulls the plug but then the second that she finds the broadcast he is there up in her business and is trying to reclaim the credit and then there's the scene where he's about to go into the test on the machine and he has just won the candidacy from ellie and he go- he approaches her and says i recognize how unfair this is and this is your spot this was your discovery so you should be the one going but this is the way the world works and instead of trying to fix that injustice he plays into it and he he speaks the things that he knows that people want to hear rather than truth the things that he actually believes when it came to religion ellie refused to say i believe in god just because that's what people wanted to hear mm-hmm. and yet drumlin did do that he he wanted to do whatever he could to take the spot and being a man and being someone with wealth he was able to do that and like i said despite recognizing how unfair that is he used it to his advantage there's a sub theme in the movie about women and their roles in not only in science but just women in power and 
this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's it circles back. I promise. But the 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 piece about and we touched on this a little bit about how Zemeckis is playing with tech and how he played with footage in this movie of Clinton. He inserted Clinton into the movie because during Clinton's presidency. I believe it was the discovery from one of the Mars rovers that they essentially found out that there was probably still water on Mars. And so Clinton made a speech and Zemeckis saw the speech and was like, Oh, I want that in my movie. So he did more of the playing with inserting actual people into the footage, inserting the movie characters into actual footage. But the plan before that was to have Linda Hunt, who y'all might know from NCIS Los Angeles or grandmother Willow from Pocahontas. She was supposed to play the president. And I think that her role kind of gets filled by Angela Bassett, mm-hmm. who's like higher up in the president's cabinet. Because it's pretty clear that they like restructured the scenes with the president. So because they couldn't get Bill Clinton in the movie. So they just kind of reorganized the scenes. So he's there's like occasionally a body double. But for the most part, he's just not shown or they cut away when he enters the room. So I think Bassett kind of fills the role that was maybe written originally just for the president character Mm -hmm. and they just hand it over to her because they have to have there really aren't that many other women in the movie and ellie's really the core of that but bassett holds up that piece in that as you said when drumlin tails ellie on her whole journey and keeps sabotaging her career and her discoveries the only person who because all of the men at some point have a doubt even william fitchner's character has doubts her at some point when they before they hear the message, the night that she hears the message, he tells her that they need to stop. All of the men criticize her at some point. Angela Bassett is the only character who boosts her in that way. And John Hurt's character, Haddon, is the only man who supports her right throughout the movie. And the only reason she even maintains control is because Angela Bassett reminds everybody that she was the one who discovered the message and that she should still be able to have a certain modicum of control. But around the same time that she says that, Haddon messages her specifically because he feels that she's about to get kicked out. Mm -hmm. And he gives her the primer for the code that the aliens sent because she needs to have a big piece to stay in the game. So that's, I do think there's a sub-theme in the film about women and about how men arrest control from women. Right, especially in the fields of science and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, but I just realized, also add in, contact also walked so that hidden figures could run. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> just had to throw that one in there, too. We're talking about how, like, our improvements on, <laughs> we need to do movies about lady scientists, hidden figures, y'all. Another character we have is Kitts, who's played by James Woods. and Who's somehow worse than Tom Skerritt. <laughs> yeah, somehow. <laughs> and it's James Woods being James Woods. And yes. he's good at that, which is why he gets cast in these roles. Yeah, don't, don't ever follow James Woods on Twitter if you don't want to. <laughs> if, you, if you want Hades really ruined for you, don't follow James Woods on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he 
plays kits. He is the national security advisor, I think. He works for that organization, mm-hmm. for the government. And he sees the negative sides of things, the negative possibilities of what this contact could mean. He assumes the worst in protecting America's interests, which I guess makes him good at his job. <laughs> if his job is to protect America by assuming the worst of everybody else, then I guess you're doing your job. But it doesn't make him a good person at all. He, he second guesses Ellie. He scolds her for not keeping this within the government, even though the broadcast from aliens to Earth was not pointed directly at America. (laughs) (laughs) And then he's the one who does interrogate her at the end in that final hearing. And as it turns out, he is just sort of tearing her down for the sake of protecting secrets. Because we get that scene at the end between him and Angela Bassett's character, Constantine, that, yes, Ellie's equipment didn't record this story that she is telling everybody about what she witnessed, but it did record 18 hours of noise within just a few seconds of real time. Mm -hmm. And so there's some things, there's got to be some kind of truth to what Ellie is saying, even if it's not exactly as she describes it. And he knows that, yet he's tearing her down anyways to, again, protect the secrets of America. I think the important thing to note, too, about Kitz is that he's he's meant to be emblematic of a very conservative U.S. belief of what would happen in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. He's the opposition at every turn to the point that he essentially drives himself almost to the point of madness to protect this secret from the public. And really not just to protect the secret, but to protect a normalcy of U.S. understandings of life. Mm-hmm. Like this is just so beyond his scope, and it comes with so many potential changes to understanding daily life and humanity. He is very much in antithesis to both Ellie and Palmer in that he is not community minded he is very minded of the self mm-hmm. like theoretically, yeah, he's working for the u s security division, so he should be thinking about everybody's safety, but that's not really what he's meant to symbolize. <laughs> he's meant to symbolize that. The U.S. as a whole has a selfish interest in this message. And again, I know I I think earlier I had recommended Arrival as a sister to this movie. And Arrival plays with that a lot, too, about what the consequences of aliens contacting us has at an international level and how different countries will react to this. And so Kitz is there to really be a stand-in for the U.S., the selfish side of the U.S., the capitalistic side of the U.S. that is like, how does this affect our profits and our security and our this and that? And us, 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 me, me, me. <laughs> is That's really his role. And, I mean, you want a conservative who thinks about himself, you cast James Woods and you got a really great <laughs> performance out of him. That's probably not really that much of a performance as it is just what James Woods would do if aliens actually contacted Earth. So... <laughs> You know, if hopefully James Woods won't have any political positions by the time aliens get in touch with us, because could be in some real trouble. <laughs> well, it's funny how his character is trying to keep this secret to protect American interests, and our own government now only just released documents like aliens. That, that proved <laughs> or suggest the existence of aliens. So. <laughs> yeah, it is kind Shoot of funny how it's, it's being used in the complete opposite way to do the same thing it's a bizarre i mean who thought we would be here now but yeah i mean that's one of the many reasons and we'll we'll probably get to this a little later but that is many one of the many reasons why contact still holds up 97 was when it was made and mm-hmm. like that's yeah it's still solid 
it's easier if this whole thing is a hoax. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's what it boils down to and why he is so keen to disprove her. Because I think it says in the film that he retires from his post as National Security Administrator, doesn't he? Like he steps down or something in order to take the chair of this interrogation. Specifically so he can lead the interrogation. But he also implies... Because he says, I'm not doing this to run for another position in government, which obviously means he's going to run for another position. <laughs> so <laughs> like, this has nothing to do with my own personal gain. Like, I mean, that line is there for a reason. But I mean, also I have to cite, since we had talked about this earlier too, just that little pocket of that scene where he does talk to Constantine about the hours of footage. Another great example. It's the last example in the movie of the suspense gut punch that this movie does so well because we've already had the main suspense resolved she may have gone to the other planet she may have met the alien that piece has pretty much been resolved as best it can be so it gives you a little more to chew over just by that one scene which i really do think another movie may have cut Mm -hmm. i can see that scene being contentious for a movie studio to be just like if you're looking for something to cut cut that But I'm so glad they leave it in because it is emblematic of the movie's attempt to keep raising questions. Right, because it leaves us with that question as well. Yes, because that's the one piece of information that the audience has that Ellie doesn't have. Right. And it it makes us wonder, okay, is there truth to what we witnessed with Ellie? Like, did we really witness it? Did we slip into her subconscious and just see what she wanted to see? The only hint that we have towards any kind of answer, and it's not a full answer, because it's just noise after all that it recorded. It was just a lot of it that it recorded. Mm -hmm. But the knowledge that there was 18 hours of noise recorded in just a few seconds lends some credibility without giving it completely over to Ellie. Yes. At the very least, there's more to it that, I mean, maybe I should thank my lucky stars that this movie didn't get as popular as it did because there might have been a terrible sequel based on that section, but based on that one scene. (laughs) So... It's fine. It's fine. Titanic came out and took over everything, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, and we we can thank Zemeckis, too, because I'm sure Zemeckis, you know, he and Bob Gill are famous for saying there will never be a remake or sequel to Back to the Future while they have control over it. So who knows? Maybe he's pulling something behind the strings here yes, to, God, to yeah. keep that the same for this one. Hold on tight, Zemeckis. Just keep, keep, it, <laughs> keep it locked away. Like, don't ever let that happen, please. <laughs> The only other characters I had to mention are are pretty brief, I think. The first is Kent, played by William Fickner. It took me a while to realize that he was blind. It it didn't even occur to me. I just thought he was an eccentric character with weird mannerisms. But then later in the film, we do see him with the the walking stick. I don't know the technical term for it, but that's the first time I was like, oh, that that sort of explains (laughs) some of his characteristics earlier. I can't totally fault you on that one because I'm pretty sure when I first saw the movie, as a kid, I didn't pick up on that one. Uh I picked it up on viewings as an adult because of the and it's not like it's not really that in your face because the first scene where he meets ellie he tries to shake her hand and he misses and she just kind of looks at him like oh because she doesn't realize he's blind immediately either and then of course part of the problem is that all the love to william fishner but you are wearing a disability sir maybe let's not do that but since you're here doing that he is a really good actor he is a really big heart of the movie because he is Part of that humanity that Ellie falls back on in the movie, especially when he shows up at the end, because he is the the connective tissue for him is that he, because of his blindness, he has other senses increased and his hearing is more 
in tune than everybody else. So he hears the layers in the message from the aliens. He hears Ellie when she says she's ready to go and nobody else can hear her. And he is, I think, like while he is still, as I mentioned before, he is still one of those male characters that criticizes Ellie and doesn't fully hold her up. He tries. He tries really hard, but he even relents at a certain right. point. But that said, he is also important in that he is part of that connective tissue that we talked a little about with Palmer, where Ellie in that scene, the reason her voice is shaking, the reason she is nervous to go, even though she says she's good to go, is because she's finally had a realization that she is going to lose people and that his character is one of those people that she will lose. Unlike Palmer, she didn't get a goodbye with. He shows up at the 11th hour to talk to her and she doesn't even really get to see him or she briefly gets to hear him. So that's, it's more of that piece of the human connectivity because Ellie has so few people that she's truly connected to. Right. You you see how important they are to each other when he does show up at that, that final scene before she launches into her journey because mm-hmm. they've spent their entire past careers. four or five years careers yeah. pursuing the possibilities of life beyond our stars well and it's kind of implied too that he like it's not fully discussed in the movie but it's implied that he kind of shifted the direction of his career to work with ellie because mm-hmm. he's not specifically seti she is but he's not when they meet but he goes likely from a more profitable astrophysicist career to seti as a career to work with ellie because he recognizes her passion and because of his lack of vision you you would assume that i mean like like it often happens his sense of hearing is boosted and so that's why this this career makes such sense for him because he's able to decipher things that other people aren't see and so that you mentioned this earlier i believe when he is able to be the only one to hear ellie say i'm good to go i'm i'm good to go please continue with this this is my life's work don't shut it down now because i might not get another chance and he's the one able to hear that and to confirm it and to allow ellie to have this experience that she has he's a more literal representation of the blind faith piece that zemeckis is playing with in the film Mm -hmm. he's a bit of a representation of that but like that said let's cast let's cast an actual blind person for this yeah And then my last character, I don't know if we need to linger on for too long, but I just need to point out Haddon, played by John Hurt, who is just chewing over every bit of dialogue he has. And it is so much fun to see him in such an eccentric character again. (laughs) It's so perfect because he's like, I was just watching, I'm just rewatching Harry Potter. And he seems to have made, and I I could do with more of an education on Hurt, but like from the movies of his that I know, like he seems to have built a career on being like, I'm here for a second and then I'm gone. (laughs) But he always leaves such an impression because people love Ollivander in Harry Potter. Like Ollivander leaves an impression. And I really loved in the documentary that I just watched for Sorcerer's Stone, he talks about, or I think that was on the Chamber of Secrets Blu-ray. He talks about his entrance in Sorcerer's Stone, where he comes in on the ladder and he's like, oh, that was delicious. Like, that was the best entrance a a character can have. And in one of his most memorable roles in Alien, like, he's the first one to die. But he's so well remembered because it's the chestburster scene. And, I mean, that's no small part in credit to his acting in the scene. And here, Haddon is built up to be eccentric. He is eccentric in appearance. And he is... I love that he is 
presented in the first half of the movie, he is not seen. He's mainly just tech. You see him on a TV screen. When Ellie goes to one of his offices, you see he's he's watching her through a camera, and the camera is kind of personified as him. He contacts Ellie the first time very similarly to the aliens, actually. He contacts her through a message on her computer, and he sends her printed documents and stuff. He's purely a tech presence, and then he becomes a human presence in the second half. And I think that's so important because Haddon is part of the final clincher in the scene with Woods and Foster where they are sparring with each other, where Kitts says, like, Haddon made all this up and used his millions of dollars to play you. And Ellie kind of is like, oh, like you see a moment where she does wonder if maybe that did happen and that he did play her. It's an interesting question that his character brings to the story, especially in that that final hearing, because when we first meet him in person and she visits him on, what is it, his plane, I guess? Yeah. uh He says he just wants to leave his mark on the world. He calls it a, quote, final gesture of goodwill to the people of this planet who have given from whom I have taken so much. And so that that line, it makes you wonder when the idea is introduced by Kitts in the hearing, was he just trying to leave a mark at any cost? Was it actually to allow Ellie to to make contact with this extraterrestrial life form and to bring back answers to the world? Or was it through an elaborate hoax that does eventually set Ellie up for failure? So there's this, you don't know for sure, because he is such an eccentric character and we don't have a lot of time with him. It It's just as interesting a possibility that it was a hoax, that it was a real broadcast that he helped Ellie to pick up. That's why I really love that little moment during Kitz's speech where he's defaming Haddon, where Zemeckis cuts to the scene where Haddon has passed and the astronauts are zipping him up into a bag. And it's so kind of comically tragic, depending on how you view Haddon throughout the movie. Because if he really was doing this as a gesture of goodwill, Kitz is just there defaming him literally over his dead body. But if he did do this as a hoax, he got the last laugh because he did unite the world under this insane story. And I I love that piece, too, with how Zemeckis plays with that, because I think any other movie or director would not have necessarily included that cutaway because you don't need to. You could have other characters. You could even have Kitz have said in that speech, Haddon's dead. Like he could have revealed that to Ellie and that would have been a shocker in itself. But rather than do that... Cutting away to Haddon continues to raise those questions for the viewer. And I think that's such a great choice to take it out of the perspective of the speech for a moment and just cut away to that. I mean, that also goes back to what I said quite a bit earlier about how the movie continues to play with perspective and scope from small to large. And that's just another moment where that's happening. Moving on from character discussion, let's talk a little bit about the music. Oh my God, yes. That's what tell me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love Alan Silvestri. He is so good. And as I said earlier, the main theme for this film reminds me a lot of Forrest Gump in a good way. Yes. So I want to play a clip real quick and then we can talk about it a little bit.
what I like about this, I'm going to leave it playing, but I'm going to lower it. What I like about this is that it doesn't sound like a sci-fi main theme. This, this to me brings about the character parts of this film, which is what I think is so endearing about it is because Zemeckis is focused more on Ellie as a character and her outlook on the world and her pursuit of something greater than herself. Um, and this theme really echoes that to me. See, Chad, you can talk about this. You you can help me along with this and walk me through this a little bit because you're the music expert. I know nothing. Like <laughs> I played piano for five years and then gave up. Um, <laughs> and really music has probably been one of the most challenging things for me to talk about in terms of film, because I don't really know a lot of the technical terms. Uh-huh. I really just have to kind of write off of my feelings and hope that somebody else can translate them into tech speak. Well, you know, the thing is about music, I hate to interrupt, but the thing about music is it is about feeling like if, yes. if, a, if a film score makes you feel something that was intentional, or at least it should be intentional from the best composers. And so, oh, for sure. Yeah. I feel just like there's Kind of just in the same way as film studies, there is a way to break down the technical speak to to help you understand what the tech is doing to make you make the feeling or to elicit the feeling. And with Contact, I think what the funny thing is about Silvestri's score is that it does sound very traditionally Silvestri, but I do think he does sprinkle the sci-fi... I'm not sure what instruments he's using that's doing it specifically, but I mean, just in that piece alone, I think that was the waste of space, wasn't it? Or small moves. Yeah. It's the waste of space. Very first yeah, track at the beginning. And the way that he ends it with kind of like the tinkling bells, it's like, essentially he's making the sound of stars. Right. And I just, Oh, I love that. But like on, I think you're right. I really love the way you put that, that he his music is so character driven, because I think he manages to, while not necessarily making a traditional sci fi score, the way I hear it is that it is a character driven score inside of a sci fi epic. Like he's what he is doing is making a very grand feel for his score. The music has um, a lot of swells of violins, and it seems to be. And again, he uses the same music technique on Cosmos. And he does it to show kind of the swells of grandiosity of the universe, of like clusters of stars and galaxies. But he's trying to get you to like think about that on a personal level. And mm. I see it so clearly throughout his score. His score just upholds. And it's funny because Silvestri really rides a fine line with a lot of his scores like he's one of those scorers who could dangerously tip into purely sentimental territory if he wanted to yeah absolutely his music could be sappy and just essentially be i was thinking about this a good comparison i have for this not necessarily a universal feeling but out of all of the potter there were a lot of people who scored potter and one of the most sentimental out of them i feel is patrick doyle who scored goblet of fire and that was the only one he did Right. And poor Patrick Doyle, I think, is working with a very confused movie that's confused tonally. If you watch Goblet of Fire, it jumps between humor and deep seriousness, and it doesn't have much transition in between. And in my opinion, Doyle is working so hard in that movie to compensate for the film not giving you time to breathe and process what you're seeing. So, like, he will go from really light to really dark really fast, and he's working really hard. My favorite example is the scene with Cedric's death, because mm -hmm. literally it's just a bunch of people standing around not reacting. So Doyle goes in super heavy 
on the violins on these like tragic minor notes. Mm -hmm. And the music I realized for me personally is what makes that scene in Goblet of Fire sad more so than what's happening on screen. Because what's happening on screen is just kind of rushed and chaotic for me. And Silvestri could be that person doing that. He could be compensating for his movies. But I think because he has clearly a very good relationship with Zemeckis, he is holding Zemeckis's footage hand in hand with his music. He's not as perhaps, he's not scoring moment to moment like Williams does, mm -hmm. but he's not scoring with an overall just sentimental tone like Doyle would do. He's right on the balance of it. Because my favorite piece is the, I mean, I have a lot of favorite pieces in the Contact soundtrack. <laughs> and it's very frustrating because the con Contact soundtrack is another thing that I'm trying to hopefully just come across at half price books. And I, I yeah. cannot find it. I'm going to have to get it off of eBay. And it's not an easy soundtrack to just come across. Beautifully, though, the Blu-ray includes a, a soundtrack-only version. So you can just watch the movie with the music. Oh, really? That sounds amazing. Yes, I love my Contact Blu-ray so much. <laughs> all movies should have that by the way that should be a feature on all movies but Silvestri's like my favorite piece of Silvestri's that is just so supporting the work is I know Ellie's saying okay to go in the movie but I think the piece is good to go on the soundtrack right. and his score of that section and I think we'd mentioned this before that section is almost as long as the travel through space and it's so it's kind of surprising that they lingered that long on the launch because actually his whole musical piece covers almost the whole scene and it's right. long. Yeah, it's seven plus minutes or so. Yeah, I think. it's a long section of the film and he is working so hard with Zemeckis to make that scene suspenseful. That scene without the music just would not be as effective. Like the, there's one part in particular in that scene that I love and he does it just right. When they cut away to the machine, they're really trying to show off the machine, as they should. It's a technical accomplishment as far as CGI. It's really well done. And the part where they launch the secondary rocket boosters to send the last ring into circles, he swells with this huge suspenseful cue. And it's pretty much that, like, that's the last part of the machine that puts it into gear before it opens up the wormhole. And it's just so good because literally all you're watching is some rocket boosters turn a machine on. It's not <laughs> exciting. It shouldn't be exciting, but it's a really exciting shot because his music goes hand in hand with the moment. And Zemeckis just like, I don't know who the editor was on contact, but Zemeckis is working really well with his editor to build that scene. And then Silvestri comes in and finishes it. And it's, there are so many scenes of suspense and contact that I love. But that particular scene with the launch, in a way, is almost more satisfying to me than the journey. The journey is still amazing, but the launch anticipation is incredibly done. Right. I, I wrote down the music in that scene as a highlight for me as well. I don't have a clip of it with me, but it is absolutely worth listening to, the, <sighs> the full long track. But another one that I do have a clip of is from the track called No Words. Oh. And it, it speaks to what you were talking about, about how this is a character study inside of a space epic. Because yes. this is the moment where she arrives on the beach in, what is it, Pensacola, or, mm -hmm. I think, that they have crafted for her. And it is reminiscent of the main theme, but it's also got that twinkle of space. So here's, here's the clip of that. This is as she's approaching. 
But if you just got that little twinkle of the, the light piano, mm. it might even be really low celeste. I'm not sure. And then the last part of this music is just like a little lullaby that is like a little snippet of the main theme. And that's the part where she's being lowered down onto the planet. Right. And it's just, yeah. And then they're, by the way, I mean, everybody probably who's seen Contact knows this, but if you're looking for where the imagery is being adapted from, it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like the, the, the journey all the way through to the point where she lands on the planet is Space Odyssey, especially that moment where she's like, there's a lot of moments in the journey, but like when she's in that fetal position, uh-huh. in like slumber, that's definitely Space Odyssey. <laughs> but oh my god, I also really love the follow-up piece to this when she's actually. I think that one's the is that one the small small moves when she's yes. on the planet with the alien because these themes are all just he does go heavy on the Alpha Waste of Space theme, and I love that because it's that's really her that theme. Like you said, if we're talking about epic and then narrowing it down into character study inside an epic, the theme is her relationship with her father. That's where that theme comes in, because it's his words that are the theme. He rides with her through that whole journey, essentially. Like, he's there the whole journey through the theme. So to have it culminate in her seeing this unparalleled vision in space that she can't describe, and then following it up with her experience with the alien is just ugh. i can't say words about it either there she's right they should have sent a poet because right. like i wish you had like i should have filmed myself when you played those clips of the music because immediately like my hands go to my heart my face just crumples because it's like it's not just the music of contact is one of those rare soundtracks that works really well if you're just listening to it out of context uh-huh. but it also works beautifully in complement and it also does a good job of recalling the imagery if you've already seen the film i think the piece that and it's funny that this carries over with silvestri's work in cosmos but he really carries over the um not not just the grandiose beauty but also that kind of twinkling curiosity of space and the distance of stars and that kind of lighter lullaby feel that you hear at the end of that piece is as much in cosmos as the as the grand epic stuff i have just a couple more clips to share (laughs) yes god more please yes (laughs) the first one i have is from the second flashback that we have where we do see what happened to her father it's called heart attack and Mm. it's a mix of i think that same theme with some like really low foreboding sounds Mm -hmm. as well So you have this swell into what's actually happening. You hear the tragedy in these notes. And this is the part where she's running. Mm-hmm. But then you have that, that otherworldly, yes. lo- those voices, and you have the, the haunting Celeste again. So there's that one, which really stood out to me while I was watching and then the other one that I have is the I Believe Her music. Mm. And I, I didn't clip exactly the moment where he says, 
I believe her, but this is the moment immediately following the hearing where she exits and she's on her own mm. and feeling very alone. And she looks up and there is Joss and you hear that connection that they have in this moment. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's right here. Hmm. Yeah. That's where they, they, they see each other and make that connection and join together. Yeah, like I said, it's that beauty where he doesn't he doesn't score on the moment all the time, but when he does, mm -hmm. it's very effective. Absolutely. I think that Silvestri in general, his greatest strength is composing a really strong central theme yes whereas you know you have somebody like williams or howard shore in the lord of the rings series mm -hmm. where they create little themes for characters and places and events and they mix match those themes together and they work really really well Silvestri has like this one grand idea and then he he fits all these little other moments into that idea and associates them with that idea. Like Back to the Future, if you look at that score, oh, yeah. there's really only three themes that I can really think of that come to mind. There's a main theme. There's the theme that plays while Marty is writing the letter to Doc in the cafe. And then there's these little like silly motifs, like these little sporadic notes that mean a certain thing, like the ba da da ba da dum. But in general, Silvestri just he has really strong ideas that he then frames everything else around we talked about this way back earlier but contact isn't one of Silvestri's scores where like it's really bombastically showing itself like i said it, it does really good going hand in hand i feel like if you want to like a more obvious example of Silvestri with that polar express is a great example of that probably because christmas music is more bombastic in general and celebratory and Silvestri doesn't get to be in Polar Express as much because there's a lot of Christmas standards that are being used in Polar Express. But when mm -hmm. he's there, he's there. But to be fair, too, Polar Express is a children's movie, so it's trying to communicate something a little more clearly. But there is a very clear theme in Polar Express with, the, with his theme. There's at least, I think, two clear, really clear themes that are visited a lot. But Contact is also a great example of that. I love the, I like that you highlighted the heart attack track because I don't uh -huh. really, I don't think of that one a lot, especially because I'm so astounded by the visual cinematography trick that happens in that scene that right. I usually forget about the track, <laughs> but, but the track is boosting the scene really well. And it's unusual because there's not a lot of tracks on the contract soundtrack that sound like it. It's a pretty unique moment in the soundtrack. I was looking at the, the soundtrack list, and the, my other favorite one that we didn't really touch on too much is Ellie's Bogey, um, when she hears mm -hmm. the message. I also love that track as well, because that's another one, kind of like Good to Go, where he swells the music. And it's funny, because that's another one where there's a really amazing visual trick that happens in that scene. But it's clear that by this point, he has, like, him and Zemeckis just know how to speak to each other, and he knows how to uphold Zemeckis's vision. It's beautifully scattered throughout the movie 
Well, let's go into our last section. We could all probably talk about Sylvester for a long time. <laughs> uh, yes, I stand. We stand. <laughs> we stand, Sylvester. Long may he continue to work in the industry. Please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, these are things that I'm sure we've we've already spent time talking about the impact of this film and the sort of the messages and the takeaways of this film while talking about everything else. But is mm-hmm. there anything you want to just like solidly state here at the end as far as its impact and things that sit with you? Well, the reason context still is my all these years later, and I've seen so many wonderful films since 1997, obviously, I didn't just stop watching movies in 1997. Contact still remains at the top of my personal list because not only does it encapsulate everything that I want in terms of what I've come to expect from a film based on my film education, but it's universal. Like, it doesn't date itself too much. The only thing, ironically, that dates it is the use of Bill Clinton. Um, and, and the and scene inserts like that, and maybe some of the tech, but that's really not a problem. The film is so lucky that it asked a question that will probably pretty, it asks a set of questions that we will never have the answer to as humans. And that's mm-hmm. what makes it everlasting. It asked a central question of humanity that will never be answered, but will always be asked. And it did it in a way where it didn't have the answer but it had some answers to chew over with the biggest one being, as I said before, that remember that you're not as alone as you think you are. I love that. Mm -hmm. And the way it's said and the way that the story carries that message again with that piece where Zemeckis follows characters who think they've lost something, but they've always had it. I think contact is, I would say kind of his penultimate example of that because he's examining that specific question so closely because it's in all of his movies like we were saying before it's in gump it's even in back to the future it's in polar express but i think because that question and the mission and the drive is so central to that question and to the movie that that's why i think contact has such a good has such legs the other film that i thought too to compare it to because i love comparing films to other films that didn't do well (laughs) (laughs) is cloud atlas by the wachowskis i am really sad now thinking about it that i didn't add that to my list when you asked me for a list of movies (laughs) because it should be on my list i love cloud atlas and cloud atlas asks very similar questions and does not have answers but is also asking very similar questions about humanity large large questions about humanity i also like films that just You know, I'm not above films that, like, are great for just, like, I'm a turn-off... I mean, people say, like, turn off your brain. To quote Lindsay Ellis, I know I never want to turn off my brain. I like my brain. Right. (laughs) That's more like colloquial speak, like, I'm not actually turning off my brain. I never turn off my brain when I watch a movie. But there are some movies that don't ask as much of me or as much of its audience. And I love movies like Contact that ask this much. I think that's also why I love movies that have potential but failed, because I can see the questions they were trying to ask. Contact is often a movie that I hold other movies up to in terms of a good example of asking really complicated questions. And the first thing that you should probably do is understand that you don't have the answer. Another negative example, and it's funny because I mentioned Alien earlier, Prometheus tried to do the same thing that Contact did. Prometheus really thought it was something as far as like what happened for me there because it has a lot of similar themes to contact it's just like what is our origin in relationship to aliens like did aliens have something to do with us do they have answers for us 
And Prometheus is so high and mighty at the end to say like, oh, I have answers for you, but they're in a sequel. So go watch the sequel. And um, we're going to get a sequel. <laughs> and <laughs> and they did. But I think Prometheus, the problem was that Prometheus did posit that it had an answer. Prometheus was really intent on telling you that it had an answer, not only about what happened with the Alien franchise, but also <laughs> what is the answer to humanity? And I think that might have been part of Prometheus's mistake is that it really set itself up to be like, I have the answer to humanity, but uh, I don't have it yet. So I'll do it in the sequel. So check back with me later <laughs> versus versus contact. That was like, I don't have an answer, but I have some ideas. And right. I'd like to tell you about some of these ideas and you take away from it, whatever you get. I have talked about that in the past when we talked about sci-fi films. I think the best sci-fi films are the ones that ask questions um, mm -hmm. I think that's the the point of sci-fi overall yes. beyond like looking cool yes. and having cool special effects and all that kind of stuff. The the point of sci-fi is to ask questions. And I agree with you. I, I I'm glad that we don't have any answers here or attempts at answers here. I am a Christian. I, mm -hmm. I do believe that there is a God out there that has a purpose or whatever. I, I wouldn't say the way the priest in this film does to, mm -hmm. to Ellie after her father's death. I wouldn't <laughs> say that like that, even if it might be what I believe it, mm -hmm. it's, there's a tact, you know, there's, yes. there's a, yes. <laughs> a way to say things and a time to say things. But the point I have here is that I have always believed that science is not in conflict with religion necessarily. Mm -hmm. It it is a marriage of the two and the perfection and the intricacies of science and the the way things form together to to create the perfect environment that Earth is for life and sustainability and stuff like that. It, it hints towards a greater power. That's just the way I've always viewed it. And so I like that this movie in the characters of Joss and Ellie and their relationship with each other shows that those two things can fit together. Science and religion can work together. They don't have to be against each other. Ultimately, what it comes down to is we're all searching for answers. We're all searching for truth. And I really like that Ellie has that presented to her. She is against the idea of a belief in a God. In that moment when she confronts Joss after he sabotages her chances at being chosen as a candidate, he says, 95% of the world believes in a higher power. And here you are saying that those 95% are being fools. Mm -hmm. And in the end, she sees what they see. We don't get an answer whether she sides with Joss now that there is a God, but you have to believe that she probably considers there's a possibility in it now because she's experienced something herself that can no longer be explained. And so I, I like that this movie presents both sides and kind of meshes them together and says, and Zemeckis has said, I was reading, that this movie was talking about how those things don't have to necessarily disprove each other. Mm -hmm. I love that you were like kind of open about your, your personal beliefs about that too, because I think that's the other joy of this movie for me, is that it is very mindful and respectful of any belief. Yes, absolutely. And you will come out of this movie with such personal experiences of it based on your personal beliefs because I like I I I am I'm a I'm a whole weird mix of things like I was for quite a while my youth I was raised with no religion then we converted to Judaism I had a bar mitzvah and everything like I went I I learned to speak Hebrew a little bit in my in middle school and 
but I always had questions, but I went to a very, I, I was part of a very liberal um, Jewish renewal congregation. Our rabbi was a female. She was one of the first female rabbis. And she always entertained my questions about mm-hmm. things. And I loved that. I loved that she entertained my curiosity and never shot me down. And my father, who was very deeply rooted in religious studies in his college years, has a lot of interesting beliefs that like, I, I find fascinating to discuss with him about and how he's seen the evolution of his beliefs throughout the years. And Contact is actually a movie that that's the, maybe the other reason why I love Contact so much is Contact to me also speaks to the power of movies to be a part of our discussion of humanity and mm-hmm. why movies are a valuable piece of art because Contact questions like these are really hard to answer and art is one of the ways that we can explore these questions and contact does it really well contact for me to experience as somebody who kind of considers himself i quote daniel radcliffe and i say i'm i'm jewish non-practicing very proud of my heritage but i don't necessarily see myself as an atheist and i use the word god but i don't often necessarily think in those terms and Mm -hmm. contact really helps me grasp a language for how to describe my feelings about that because it really does sit somewhere in the in a comfortable middle ground if you want to take it that way you can take it to the science extreme you can take it to the religious extreme the faith extreme or you can sit right somewhere in between pretty much anywhere in between and you've gotten what the movie wanted you to get and it shows the dangers of like religious extremity that's what yes. jake Busey's character is you know and yeah. and then you have the the people who are so far on the science side of things that's what the way ellie kind of starts off is she says i can't believe in something i don't have proof for mm-hmm. well what are your thoughts on this thing that you just experienced like do you mm-hmm. have proof of that no you don't you have your memory of it and just like with your father you you don't have proof of love you have memory of him and you know you have this feeling inside that you love him and so i just really like that this movie is like you said respectful of both sides and is good at asking those questions and asking you to ask those questions of yourself and of your worldview as well when you said that piece too that reminded me too in that scene where the gorgeous irony of the scenario for ellie is that one of the people on the investigation board like these same minded people were the ones who were saying like that Ellie couldn't go if she didn't believe in God, essentially. Like, she mm-hmm. was not chosen because she didn't show that she believed in faith. So therefore, right. she doesn't get to go, because that's a reflection of the world's, Earth's beliefs. And yet, here they are, literally, and I, you could see it as beautifully heavy-handed, but I don't. I feel like the actor was almost told to do it heavy-handedly, and I still love it, because I think it's meant to be there to be that point. Because one of the men on the board questions her and says, you expect us all to take this on faith? <laughs> and the same people who told her, you don't have faith, so you don't get to go to space and be the scientist you truly are, are like, we can't just believe you on faith. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's highlighting hypocrisy in that way as well. Yes, both sides have a beautiful hypocrisy. Palmer plays that same hypocrisy on Ellie throughout the movie. And she plays it back. And in the finale, the most important scientific discovery of the millennia, she can't get people to believe it because all she has to go on is is faith that it happened. And that's just 
Ah, again, this movie. Sometimes I I worry we we live you know in an era where sometimes movies don't they come out before they know what they wanted to say. I often watch movies where I'm like, ooh, that could have used a second draft. <laughs> like <laughs> one more draft, one more draft really could have fixed that movie. And Contact is when I watch it, I'm just like, it's tight, it's sealed, it knows exactly what it wants to say, and it says it very succinctly and satisfyingly. And again, no matter what your background or your personal experience as a viewer, I think you would get satisfaction from contact. Like, even if you have that kind of (laughs) amusing bad faith criticism of just like, oh, she went windsurfing with her dad. Like, (laughs) the alien is her dad. There's still so much value in the movie in spite of those criticisms you might have. There's still so much there. It's so solid. I just can't, every time I watch it, I just can't believe how solid it is. The only other things I really wanted to point out as far as like impact or takeaways go, or just like some little commentaries on America, (laughs) their assumption that it's the most important force on earth and that everything has to come through our filter Mm -hmm. and assuming that whatever might be out there is malicious, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But really the, the focus is on the religion versus science and on taking things on faith because sometimes that's what you have to do and being okay with that, finding peace at taking things on faith in your heart. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other things to sort of wrap up or any other things you want to point out? I mean, the last thing to say for me too, since we've said all that, I think the biggest impactful stuff, but it really is important for me to point out that Zemeckis is doing some delightful cinematography and camera play. And, mm-hmm. and combining it with visual effects in this movie. And it's so, like, literally the last time I watched it was a few weeks ago. And I, again, like I said, I get new things out of it every time. And I can't remember the term for this. It's very frustrating for me because, like, all of my film verbiage is gone. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't get to use it because I'm not, like, professionally in film anymore. So I don't get to use all the verbiage. But essentially, like, I noticed for the first time, and this had always kind of been at the back of my mind, with viewings of contact, but I finally got to bring it to the forefront. I finally figured it out. He does this delightful thing where he's playing with depth of field um, Uh with the camera. So for the beginning of the movie, the movie, the shots feel oddly flat and little and, and like lacking in dimension. And one of the scenes where I always notice that is when Drumlin arrives and Ellie runs up the hill because she's late. Again, he's playing with depth of field there because he puts the whole thing in focus so it all feels flat. So you can see Ellie as clearly running up the hill as you can see Drumlin in the foreground. So there's no depth in the scene. And then I was like, why is he doing that? Because I was looking at that more at the front of the movie and I was like, oh. And like you could easily, if you want to throw out a film theory paper about it, which is what I'm trained to do, essentially, I think you could very easily argue that he's just doing such fun things with camera and scope. And part of that is that He's increasing the depth of field as Ellie's journey increases, as the distance and the length of where she's going increases and what her discoveries are increases. Suddenly, when we get the message, we get way more depth of field hmm. in the movie. There, like He starts to put the background out of focus. He actually does it in the scene with the message when she arrives in the control room after she hears it and she's running up, which, by the way amazing scene when she runs in it's cut from two different locations when she runs in to the building but he films it so well that it looks like one seamless cut but when in that scene when she arrives 
you see Ellie in the foreground and the background is blurred with the satellites. But then the camera moves and shifts focus and the satellites come into focus. So if you haven't watched Contact yet or if you're rewatching it and rediscovering it, just watch some of Zemeckis's camera play because he's playing with the scope and he telegraphs that to you in the first opening shot where he starts on earth and then he pulls all the way out to literally the like the deep field telescope view from hubble of all of the galaxies that perspective it's amazing to me that like rather than be all science jargony like interstellar ended up doing zemeckis does something that i think very few sci-fi films did and he translates concepts of sci-fi into his cinematography since you mentioned that scene at the very beginning where we zoom out from Earth and go through the solar system and the universe and everything, mm-hmm. something I noted, I, I watch movies a lot of times with subtitles just so I catch every line of dialogue. And the very last caption thing, there's radio broadcasts and stuff playing and music playing as we're zooming out. And the last caption thing that we hear as we start to exit the solar system and we see more colorful things is... From FDR, he says, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's the very last broadcast that we hear Mm. as we start exiting into the unknown. And uh, I mean, obviously, that has to be intentional. Oh, yeah, though, it's it's I mean, he must have had such fun with that scene. I know it was a almost made those poor computers explode when they put it together because that was a technical achievement. That shot from the opening of the movie was as big of a technical achievement. It was equal in visual effects to the effects that were happening that same year in Titanic. And what he's doing with the sound play, of course, if you haven't figured that out with the movie yet, is he's going through the history of the sounds and how far out they've been broadcast out into space by that time. And so, yeah, that piece to have FDR, I mean, I'm sure he was probably just delighting in figuring out which sound bites he wanted to use that would be informative to the film. Because he does play with where the sound peaks and where it falls and where it overlaps, and what you're hearing. And I think all of that is important, because you just get these little chops and bits and pieces that really immediately put you in the time period that they're from, which is important, I think, for the scope of time and the scope of the journey you're taking in that moment. And yeah, I'm sure the FDR quote, obviously, has big bearing on what he's trying to say and what a big theme of the movie is, and then the fact that it all just coalesces in Ellie's eye is just right <laughs> uh like like the scenes where he's just playing i think it's important if you if you're well versed in the movie or if it's your first time have fun enjoying the visual tricks he's playing with because some of those tricks informed future movies but some of them i've never really seen again so yet another reason why contact holds up so beautifully well for me Well, if that's all we have to say, that is the end of the 95th episode of Cinescope. I had a lot of fun, Michael. We've we've now been talking like podcasting and just like having conversation for almost four hours, which is amazing. I mean, I said to you, uh, like, I think off record, but I'll just put it on record here. I will talk about contact for as long as the static footage. (laughs) I will talk for 18 hours about contact very happily like that. and, And that's Mostly because it's, it is just that movie that got a little bit lost in time. So I love to, I've, I'm pretty sure I mentioned it on a little more multiple times. I don't even yeah. know how I snuck <laughs> that in. So, but yes, no, this is, I like I said to you before, I love the concept of this podcast. I love 
keeping it positive, loving on a, a movie. And thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Absolutely. I'll give you a chance to plug your stuff in just a moment uh, so people can find you in other places. The contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please go over to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, drop a review. That'd be really helpful in helping to expand our audience. If you have any feedback or ideas, you can email Podcast at gmail.com. Now, Michael, where can people find you and your past recordings and all that kind of fun stuff? They can find me if they're looking to just like follow me currently or get in touch with me. I'm on Twitter. My handle there is at Lupin Patronus. If you, you know, you like Harry Potter, <laughs> follow me. If, if you thought I had a lot to say before, you just hold on to your hat. But uh, at Lupin Patronus. And um, if you're not sure how to spell that, go read Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and, uh, you can also follow me on Instagram as well. My Instagram is public, uh, Lupin underscore Patronus. I don't currently podcast cause I am hoping to enter my master's degree uh, program in the spring. So I, I'm kind of taking a break from podcasting, but if you're curious, if you search for the Alohomora podcast through MuggleNet, as well as the Speak Beastie podcast from MuggleNet, I am preserved on those, and I sneak in lots of film conversation whenever I get the chance there. And hopefully, I have recently sent out the audio fictions files to MuggleNet, and hopefully those will appear someday on the internet so that you can hear not only my, me, but Chad's archival self, uh, mm. <laughs> his, his early podcasting days. But yes, that's, uh, and, and you know, keep an eye out, cross your fingers. I have lots of podcasting ideas mulling over in my head. And hopefully after my master's degree, that may come to light. So if if you like hearing me rant, keep an eye on my Twitter. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Michael. Um, Thank you. The best place to find me is on Twitter also, at Chadadada. Uh, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. You can also find me on another podcast that I hosted called An American Workplace, where we talked about every episode of The Office. You can find that where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com. And I actually just launched a new podcast, everybody. Um, yeah. We've recorded three episodes so far, and one of them is out there along with our preview episode. Andrew Grant and Melanie Grant, two of my best friends who've also been on Cinescope to talk about movies with me. Uh, the three of us are gathering together and we are watching through Avatar, The Last Airbender. Yay. And yeah, are you a fan, Michael? Oh, get the, it, don't get, get me started. <laughs> okay. I would just, Got it. <laughs> oh my God. I, okay, I'll go into, I'll go into, I will defend Korra until uh -huh. my end of days. Yes. Oh my God. Love, heart. Excellent. <laughs> well maybe you'll tune in <laughs> i think i may just i've been hoping to do a rewatch of avatar pretty soon here so that may be in the cards awesome well andrew and i have watched it together in the past and we've watched it of course over the years and melanie is watching for the first time so she's got our newbie perspective we'll be not spoiling future things so if you haven't listener watched this show before this would be a great way to do it we're going to watch one episode at a time and talk about it with depth and care and focus on character, just like I always like to do on this show. And then after we talk about the Avatar, The Last Airbender, we'll be talking about the comics and Korra, of course, and the whole universe in general. So uh, hopefully you go check that out. It is called Crossroads of Destiny. I will have links to it in the show notes, of course. And 
if you like what you hear when you listen to the first couple of episodes for that, that would be even more helpful if you drop a review and rating on Apple Podcasts because new podcasts need all the love that they can get. So I hope you all check it out. We're going to have a lot of fun making it. And if you would like to find the show notes and contact information for this show, you can find that at our website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And Michael, once again, it's been a lot of fun talking to you really for like the first time to have conversations and (laughs) enjoy each other's company like this. So I've really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to having you back in the future. Oh, my gosh. Anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Well, thank you, everybody. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and you will catch us next time. Have fun and celebrate movies. than everybody else's so he hears um he hears <laughs> i don't know why siri thought i was talking to him. <laughs> that's funny <laughs> um